last week, but Joey Rivera is our new worship pastor. And um, yeah. I wasn't sure if I should say that before or after he did the music, because I didn't know how it would go, but it uh, went well. Uh, but uh, he said to me last week, he said, uh, flannel shirts are pumpkin spice lattes for men. So, uh, th- like, this is our time, guys. But um, I'm glad that you're here. Um, you know, th- this morning, just listening, singing, and that song, Do It Again, like, you, you have these moments where uh, I, the only word I know to describe it is it just feels heavy. Like you, you, you just, you, God's always speaking, God's always active, but there are just moments even collectively when we're together, and it's like, man, you can just feel uh, the Holy Spirit in an uncommon way. doesn't mean that he's any more present or less present, but just sometimes you can just sense that presence a little bit more. And the question I always ask myself is, like, what do we do with that? And what we do with that is we honor and glorify him. Whatever it is that, that we're experiencing, that we're feeling, that we're holding on to, we then leave here and go uh, and, and transition that feeling into something that's going to bring honor and glory to him today. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. As Jen said, Jesus is our example, is our first value that we talked about five weeks ago. If you picture a tree, that's like the trunk of a tree. That's the source. It's from that. All of these other branches serving as our privilege, love is our instinct, generosity is our norm, and then today places our intention. These are all things that Jesus lived out. And as disciples, we say disciple, someone who is following Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and helping others do the same Part of bringing honor and glory to God is for us to become more and more like Jesus, to live the life that Jesus lived. And so I want to talk this morning about uh, places our intention. I want to start in a a little bit of a a weird place in the Bible. We're going to start in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter uh, 29, if you have your Bible this morning. Uh, Jeremiah is one of the Old Testament prophets. He's actually known as the, the weeping prophet because Jeremiah was the guy that, he was constantly emotional. He was crying all the time. He's the guy that cried in all the movies, cried when his favorite sports team won, weddings, funerals. I guess we're all supposed to cry at the funerals, but uh, when babies were born, like whatever it was, kids graduate high school, he's the guy that's, that's crying. And when you look at the book of Jeremiah and you see what he was called to do, you kind of understand why he was emotional. This is a guy who is a prophet of God for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel were his people, and he's constantly being told to to pronounce judgment, to pronounce God's judgment on the nation. And so in Jeremiah chapter 29, that's what's happening. Uh, There's there's judgment. The the nation is in captivity, and they've been taken from their homeland, exiled in Babylon. That was common in in this culture, where if you overthrew a nation, you wouldn't want to leave all the young men in, in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem, because you would be worried that they would band together and go, we're strong enough, we can revolt. Uh, the, the Babylonians have gone back to Nineveh, so we're just going to take control. So instead what they would do is they would take specifically the young men and they would pull them out of the country, out of the city of Jerusalem in this case, and they would move them to Babylon and they would disperse them because it's impossible for them to get together if they're nowhere near each other. And so they're in exile in Babylon and some of the false prophets are telling them, uh, they're saying things like, don't worry, this isn't going to last long. Just hold out, God's going to deliver you soon. Settling here in Babylon would be foolish. And if you think about that from their perspective, you've been pulled from a country that you love and you've been planted in a country that you don't want to be, and then you have a prophet telling you God's going to deliver you, don't get settled here for very long. You, you, you think about that, you go, yeah, I can understand where they would not want to put down roots anyway, and now you've got a prophet saying, don't, because it's not going to last very long. Even for a lot of us here, we, we live here, but we're, 
we moved from somewhere else. And when we first moved here, maybe your house wasn't ready. And so you, or you were looking to buy and you weren't sure where you wanted to buy. So you rented or, uh, or leased a house for like six months or 12 months. And when you did that, you lived differently, didn't you? Like if you were like six months and it were going to be at the beginning of the year, you'd be like, well, there's no reason to unpack the, the, the Christmas decorations. No reason to unpack the, the winter clothes. Like all those things, you would just leave that in storage. No need to engage in the HOA and the, and the apartment complex that you're at and find out what's going on with the social committee because, hey, we're not going to be here long. Like, we don't need to establish relationships. We don't need to put down roots. We don't need to, we don't need to settle. We don't need to do anything that's going to give us a desire to stay. And that's what the false prophets were saying to the exiles. But then Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 29, verse 4, it says, this is what the Lord of heaven's army, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that, th so that you may have grandchildren, have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. That does not sound anything like what the false prophets were telling them. False prophets were saying, insulate and isolate yourself from this because you're not going to be here very long, which sounds an awful lot and very similar to what church culture has taught us as followers of Jesus, that as the world continues to move further and further away from Jesus, as we continue to become more and more of a post-Christian nation, what a lot of us have latched onto is this, is this idea of embracing what it looks like to insulate ourselves from the world because we don't want to get what the world is, is producing. We don't want to become that. We don't want our kids to be under that influence. And just think about Babylon for a second. Babylon was a wicked, idolatrous land. They wanted no part of God. And God sends these exiles there to Babylon, and he says, while you're there, build homes, plant gardens, put down roots. He says, stay. He says, live as if this place is your intention. He says, live every day as if you're going to be here. He tells them not to be defensive against the Babylonians or isolated from them. He doesn't tell them to be absorbed by the culture, but he does tell them to instead to be incarnated within it. He tells them to live out the everyday, ordinary stuff of life as representatives of the one true God. And he says to them, he says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray for its welfare because its welfare will determine yours. If you want to fall in love with a place, start to care about the peace and prosperity of that place. And if you want to fall in love with Clayton, start to care about what's happening in Clayton. Start to show up at the things, the, the, the Harvest Festival. I went there yesterday for an hour, probably the biggest mistake I've ever made. Um, I went at 10 o'clock in the morning thinking there wouldn't be a lot of people there, and it was already wall-to-wall -wall people. But showing up in those places, showing up in the, the, the local businesses and engaging in the, in the lives relationally of the people around you. Like, like, like you want to begin to put down roots, start to care about the place that, that you live. You want to put down roots in your neighborhood, start to care about what's happening in your neighborhood. I mean, the same thing is true even in the, the church context. You look at what's happening in church in North America, 
the church in North America isn't growing, but yet some churches are, and you go, well, what's happening? It's just people are unhappy over here, so they're coming over here. It's just constantly, they call it sheep swapping. Like, people are going here for a while, and then when they get bored there, they go here, and then when they get bored there, they go here, and what's happening is we're not putting down roots. Man, start to care for the peace and prosperity of where you are, of where God has planted us, and we'll begin to see him move, begin to see him work through us, which is what he was telling these people. He says, you work for the peace and the prosperity of the city. You live out the ordinary, everyday stuff of life as representatives of the one true God, which is exactly what we're called to do. We're called to embrace where we are as being of God. We're called to live out the ordinary, everyday stuff of life with gospel intentionality. When we say places our intention, that's what we mean. Places our intention means that we are divinely placed where we are to live with gospel intentionality. That means we do all of the same things we normally do. The chores around the house, on the sidelines at the, at the ball field. We go to work, we hang at the pool, we're involved in the, in the PTA and we're involved in the HOA or whatever committees are in the neighborhood. We're involved in the, the, the social activities of the community. But we don't just do those things. We do those things with the good news of Jesus living in us and moving through us and when possible speaking through us into the lives of the people we are doing these things with. That our neighborhoods wouldn't just be a place to live, but instead it would be the mission that God has called us to. Summerlin is the neighborhood I live in. That Summerlin for me would not just be a neighborhood. The house I live in would not just be about my comfort inconvenience, but that I would see it as a resource to live the mission of Jesus. Whether you live in Chandler's Ridge or Glen Laurel or Tuscany or Portofino or Flowers or Lions Gates or, or one of the other neighborhoods in the surrounding community, that you and I would see our houses as a resource to live the mission of Jesus. Because I believe that it's even reshaped the way I uh, I, I look at wh where we live and why we live there and how long we're going to live there. Like we've been in the same house for uh, seven years, and there are times where I get the itch to to want to move. I want a little bit more, a little bit more property. Our homes are are pretty close together, and uh, our house doesn't have any really very little flat ground. Most of it's on slopes, and so I've got a small area where I have a fire pit, but it's not as big as the fire pit I want. I want like the castaway uh, type of fire every night in my house, and I'm, I know I sound like such a spoiled uh, brat right now. My yard's not big enough. My house is too close to everyone else's, but but I would like a little more land. Like, I want 100 acres, but I've told God I'd be okay with one. And, 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 and so, but, but even the way I look at that, we've looked at houses at times, and the reason we've never moved is we continue to come back to the same thing, which is we believe that God has divinely placed us here. And so if God's divinely placed us here, unless and until he releases us from there, we gotta stay. That your job, listen, that your job is not just a place to go and punch a time clock. Like what church has taught us is that we work from nine to five so that we can make disciples from five to nine. And the reality is we can make disciples right where we are every single day. That our job is not just a place to make money. Your job is your mission. I mean, think about it. How cool is that? If you work at Amazon, you get to make disciples every day and Jeff Bezos is paying for it. So I feel like something Donald Trump would say right there. There's like a wall, like build the wall. Mexico's going to pay for it. But somebody else is going to pay for you to work, to do his mission. Like that we would embrace the places that we find ourselves. And I'm not saying that moving or changing jobs are bad. But I'm saying what would it look like if instead of asking, is this the best thing?
thing for me if we started to ask Jesus, is this the best thing for your mission? At the places that we frequent, the boulevard is not just a great coffee shop. That Clayton High School and Corinth Holders High School and all the other high schools and middle schools around here are not just simply places we go to school, but they're opportunities to live the mission. That for every one of us, we would see that we have been recipients of the message of, really, of reconciliation, recipients of the gospel, and because of that, there's a responsibility that, come, that comes with that. Said a minute ago, when you feel the weight and the heaviness of a moment, and you go, man, I don't know what to do with this, and all we typically do is shed some tears, and what Jesus wants us to do is not shed some tears, but walk out of here and live a life of obedience, bringing honor and glory to him in every part of our life. That we have received this message of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which is a verse, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this, you maybe even memorized it. I know when I was in, in a Christian school growing up, we memorized it. Uh, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. This means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. That's a promise. That's good news. We celebrate that. That's exciting. But then he goes on and says, and all of this is a gift from God. He's talking about the new nature we have in Christ, but he's also talking, if you read earlier in the chapter, about the new bodies we're going to get and the place we're going to uh, habitate in heaven. So there's a lot of things to celebrate. There's a lot of good news. Says, all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. This is what he's done for us. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. He says it's a wonderful message. And before that, he calls it a task. It's our responsibility. Parents, those of you that have kids, how many of you have, uh, you give your kids chores? A few of us, yeah, most of us parents, yeah, a little eager. <laughs> so, um, we give them chores. What would you do if, if you told your son or daughter to, uh, to clean the bathroom and you came home and they were like, yeah, I didn't really feel like cleaning the bathroom, but I vacuumed the living room. I'd be like, that's great. That's one less thing I have to do. Now go clean the bathroom. Right? The, the task that you're given is important. Our kids, they don't get the option of choosing, oh, I didn't like the assignment, so I picked a different one. I think what's happening in the Church of North America is we don't like the assignment, so we're picking a different one. We don't like the assignment of going, make, making, going and making disciples, so we said, instead, Jesus will compromise, we'll change it. Instead, we'll create a Sunday morning environment where lost people want to show up. And that'd be great if that worked, but 60% of people who are far from God are saying they'll never go to a church service, even if they're invited. And he's given us this task. He's given us this responsibility, this wonderful message of reconciliation. Verse 20, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And then he gives us the gospel, verse 21. God made Christ, in case you forget why we're doing this, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It says, in case you forget about why this responsibility matters, don't forget that you and I have been recipients of the message of reconciliation. And as recipients of reconciliation, we now become conduits. God has placed you and I where we are to live with intentionality, to be his voice, to be his hands, to be his feet.
I'll take a moment. I'm going to have you guys. I, I want to pray. I just want to stop. We're going to transition to something else. And, 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 and I just want to allow the Holy Spirit to, to clearly speak into you uh, right now, into your heart, into your mind. And I just invite you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to ask a few questions, and then I'm going to pray. But right now, I want you to think about your neighbors. Who do you live around? Think about your coworkers. Think about the ones you like and think about the ones you don't like. Think about the parents of the other kids in your son or daughter's team. Think about the baristas or the servers we see four times a week. Students, think about Clayton, Cleveland, Corinth, Riverwood, Johnston. Think about your friends. The people that come into your mind right now, those are the people that God has called you to. So the cool thing about this is when we embrace places, our intention, God didn't put your neighbors in my mind. He put mine. God didn't put your coworkers in my mind, but he put them in yours. So Holy Spirit, right now, put faces in our minds, write names on our heart. These are the people that you are making your appeal to come back to you and you are wanting to accomplish that through us. May we live in joyful submission to that. It's in Jesus' name I pray it. Amen. All right, now I want to transition. We've got a slide up here that we're going to show you. This is something that uh, is a resource, but this is also something that's, that's a reminder. It's a reminder of what the gospel is doing for us, what the gospel has done for us, but then also how the gospel is moving through us. And so if you didn't get one of these on your way and it's a magnet, you can get one on your way out. Don't put this on your car. Like this is not for your neighbors or the people in traffic to see. This is a reminder for us, like a reminder of what we've experienced and then a reminder of the, the responsibility we have. But this is how, this is how the gospel is, is working. So, uh, so God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were without sin in the Garden of Eden. They chose to do the one and only thing they couldn't do. They chose sin and self. Adam and Eve were thrown from the garden. They fell. All of humanity fell with them. Every one of us in here are born with a, uh, we are sinners by choice because we are born with a nature to choose sin. Sin separates us from God. The only thing that could separate us from God is sin. So there was a, there was a problem. But then now, in spite of that, God who did nothing wrong, we who did everything wrong, God was for us. He sent Jesus to be with us. Jesus became one of us, and then now Jesus is living in us. And so let's, let's process through that. This is what the gospel is doing for us. God is, God is for us. God always has been and always will be for us. He's always been for humanity. He created us in love. Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Because God was for us, it forced him to act. Like, you can't be for something and not do something about it. Like, 
When someone tells me they're for ending world hunger and I say, oh, cool, okay, cool, what are you doing about that? Well, not much. I've uh, never fed a hungry person, but I shared a couple of things on social media. That is not being for something. God didn't update his Facebook status when he was for us to, I love humanity. It had to translate into some type of tangible action. So because he was for us, he came to be with us. God promised he would send a Messiah. But even before Jesus, God's presence was with us. He was the cloud by day and the, uh, and the fire by night in the wilderness of the nation of Israel. He called Abraham a friend. He was in the fire in Daniel chapter three, if you remember that story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had built. And so because they wouldn't bow down, Nebuchadnezzar ordered them to be thrown into a fiery furnace. He gets up and looks, and he looks down into the fire, and he says to the guards, he says, didn't we throw three people into the fire? And they're like, yes, we did. And he said, because I see four, and they're loose and walking around in the fire, and the fourth one is the image of the Son of God. So even before Jesus showed up, God was with us. But in Matthew 1, 23, it says, uh, it says this, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So God was for us. Jesus came to be with us, but that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough to, to, to do something about this sin problem we have. And so Jesus, number three, Jesus became one of us. In John 1.14, it says, So the word, speaking of Jesus, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This is what we know as the incarnation. Incarnation means to take on flesh. Jesus took on flesh. He became one of us in every way possible. The incarnation is when Jesus rearranged his existence so that you and I could experience the gospel. We couldn't get to where he was, and so he came to where we were. It's such a profound and a, and a powerful statement. I mean, most religions, the ultimate goal, the utopia of most religions is to become a God. We don't have to become a God because our God became a man. We don't have to get to where he is because he came to where we were. And when we say yes to his offer of eternal life, he then takes up residency within us, and Jesus is now living in us. Jesus came to free us from the power and the penalty of sin. He lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again to pay for our sins, to reconcile us back to God. And all we have to do is put our faith and trust in that and that alone, to believe it in our heart and confess it with our mouth, to be reconciled and to be united with God. And when that happens, the spirit of Jesus takes up residency within us. Galatians 2.20 says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm still in this, this earthly vessel. I still have this old nature that wants to choose sin and self, that wants to seize control. That hasn't changed. But now because of Jesus, I now have a new nature alive and well and active in me. And when I surrender control of my life and I yield control of all of my life, my mind, my will, my emotions, my words, my actions, to the Lord, under the lordship of King Jesus, he then begins to change me. He then begins to take control. He begins to live and show up through me, which is really the process of the incarnation all over again. In the early church, the early Christians understood that the incarnation wasn't just a one-time thing that happened way back in the past. Even though Jesus ascended into heaven, they believed that Jesus still shows up today incarnate in the flesh 
And while there's only one son of God, like none of us in here are Jesus, he still shows up through us. The spirit of Jesus is living in us. And when we yield control of, of all of our lives, when we surrender control of all of our lives, he then functions through us. We are now walking around as the voice, hands, and feet of Jesus. We are the visible expression of the invisible God. And this process repeats itself in us. I said it's, it's a resource, but it's also a reminder. We're reminded of what it's done in us and through us, and then now it's this resource as we go, okay, now how do I live my life? I mean, I live my life the exact same way Jesus lived his life. I live as if, as if place is my intention, that every place I go and every relationship I find myself face-to-face -face with matters, that every encounter is done with intentionality. And since God was for people, now I am for people. Since God was for me when I was dead in my sins, that I am for people in whatever condition they are in. That Jesus didn't love a redeemed, polished version of me. He loved the broken, sinful, jacked up, lost version of me. He saw me where I was and he loved me unconditionally as I was. And that today this process repeats itself through us when we love people where they are, as they are. You know, in Christianity today, I think we are known far more for what we are against than who we are for. If you talk to the average Christian, the average church, the average person that doesn't go to a church can tell you the things we stand against. But can they tell you who we're for? And that's not the gospel. In John 3.16, the gospel says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Is God against sin? Absolutely God's against sin. But it doesn't lead with him being against sin. It leads with him being for people. That I'm for you. I love you as you are. That's why our hashtag is for Clayton NC. Man, I want everybody that lives in Clayton to know that regardless of their gender, color, religion, political affiliation, or sexual orientation, we are for them. That this place, in this building, in our lives, when we leave this building, that we are for people as they are. And because we are for people, we, are, we will come to be with them just like Jesus was with us. And not only will we, will, will we be with them, those are two words that are really hard to say together, <laughs> will we be with them, um, but we'll become one of them. And th th think about it for a second. When you think about your neighbors and your coworkers, do they know anything more about you than maybe at work they just know your name? Anything about your story? Do you know anything about theirs? In our neighborhoods, do they even know our names? Are we just like the, the yappy dog house or the guy who won't let people walk in his grass? Work, you just the girl that puts on too much makeup? Like, are, are, are we known? Are we present to celebrate, to mourn, to laugh, to listen? Or are we so insulated from the world that we've completely lost touch with the people God has placed in our lives? Jesus was called the friend of sinners. He was called the friend of sinners because he routinely filled his time and his table with people who are far from God. Can we say the same thing?
if I said to you this morning, are you one of the people you work with, the people in your neighborhood, the people, to, the people you go to school with? And we may, we may say, yeah, well, I think I am. The greatest answer to that question is not found in what I think or what you think, it's found in what they think. So you may have people at your table, but do those same people invite you to theirs? Like, are you and I on the guest list? When something's going on in our street, are they going, man, what are Jarrett and Jen doing? Before we plan this, let's make sure they're around. Are they crossing their fingers hoping we're on vacation? Or do they not even tell us because they're like, oh, they're not going to be interested anyway. I just look at Jesus like Jesus was on the guest list of every party. The people of Jesus' day really seemed to like him. The religious leaders, not so much, but the people seemed to love him. I love the book of Luke. Say, so what did Jesus do in the book of Luke? He walked and he ate. And that's about it. Like 10 times in the book of Luke, Jesus is at a, is at a table, sharing a meal, loving people, caring for them. If places our intention, it means we're going to live out those everyday rhythms of life with gospel intentionality. That we're going to believe that we're where we are for a reason. That just as Jesus crossed the barrier of sin and humanity, in order to rescue us, that we would cross the barriers that exist between the people in our lives in a meaningful encounter with the gospel. So bow your heads with me. Places our intention. Believe that we are where we are, divinely placed there by God. to live with gospel intentionality. Who has God divinely surrounded you with? What neighborhood or network of people has he placed you among? And then think about the incarnation. Jesus rearranged his existence in order for us to come to a meaningful encounter with the gospel. What is the next step that you and I need to take to begin to rearrange our existence so the people around us can come to a meaningful encounter with the gospel? Holy Spirit, you are here now. You are heavy in this room. Our hearts are open and receptive to what you want to show us. I pray against the enemy and his Rolodex of excuses about why we don't need to do this. And that we would just simply 
preach the gospel to ourselves, remind ourselves that we are recipients of the ministry of reconciliation. And now we are responsible ministers of, ministers of it. Show us who you've placed us around. And give us boldness and courage and grace and love to live this mission in and among those people. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray it.